Welcome to the LEO Business Podcast, sponsored by LEO Networks, Ireland's leader in business connectivity. I'm your host, Joe Lynham, News Talks Business Editor. By sponsoring this podcast, LEO Networks aims to equip businesses of all sizes with insights from industry leaders, addressing today's most pressing challenges and fostering informed decision making and empower you with the knowledge you need to thrive in this digital age. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dermot Williams, the Managing Director of Threatscape. Whether it's malware, denial of service, cyber blackmail or old-fashioned corporate espionage, security is a very real issue for companies and consumers. They need to ensure for professional as well as legal reasons the data that they create and store as well as the physical infrastructure that leads to and from their business and their customers' premises. IBM Research found that it took an average of 277 days for companies to detect and deal with flaws or weaknesses within their IT infrastructure. So security is not just about the guy in the peaked cap. It's a whole lot more. And joining us to discuss it is Dermot Williams, Managing Director of Threatscape in UK and Ireland. Dermot, what is Threatscape? What does it do? Well, we provide business-critical IT security services and solutions to generally mid-sized and enterprise organizations. Most of our client base are in the UK and Ireland, but actually in total, we're protecting digital assets in over 100 countries for those clients. Remotely from Britain or Ireland? 24-7, yeah. So uh, I mentioned how big an issue it is. How bad is the issue of cyber threats and security threats like that? Well, a lot of things may seem like they're happening more frequently, but for those of us in the trenches, it's in many cases, a continuity of what's been going on for a number of years. What has been happening is that the attackers have found more innovative ways to monetize their attacks, which means that in particular, the financially motivated attackers have become much more uh, determined and much more innovative in the attacks they're using. We used to worry about you know teenage kids trying to just make a point and just make a name for themselves among their buddies. Or we'd worry about the activists who are trying to make a political point. And they're still there. Mm. But the guys who are trying to make money, they're really coming at us hard in terms of how they're attacking organisations. Give us an idea of some of the stuff that they do uh, to apply this blackmail or this financial pressure? Well, probably the one that a lot of people will be familiar with is the concept of ransomware. Mm. And ransomware has become a a scourge for a lot of organizations that they don't have the security in place to an effective degree. And what the attackers realized was that if they've broken into an organization, and they're not even quite sure sometimes of where they've broken into because they're throwing out a wide net and it's like a guy walking down the street, checking the car doors, trying to see if there's a door open. Mm -hmm. The hackers are prowling around the internet looking for somebody's firewall who isn't properly configured or somebody who opens an email they shouldn't open. And finally, they get their way in somewhere and they're trying to figure out where are we? What is this? And is there some way we can make money from this? And then they had the light bulb moment, which was, well, the one thing, the one person who values your data, if I can't figure out who, you're, who I can steal your data and sell it to, maybe I can just stop you having access to it. And they lock up your systems. They prevent the actual owner of the data using their own computers, inflicting business damage on them. And then they go back and say, right, how much is it worth to you? First, is that it. denial of service? No, a denial of service attack is slightly different. And that is where they basically hammer your systems with so much legitimate looking traffic that they keel over. There was a a movie a few years ago where somebody wanted to make a protest against a bank. So all they did was they got busloads of senior citizens to queue up at the bank saying they wanted to open an account. And then they'd queue up at the next counter and say, I'd like to deposit money into my account. And then they'd queue up at the next counter and say, I want to withdraw the money from my account. And the bank couldn't function. Well, a denial of service attack 
track is something like that in the mm-hmm. digital world where they're just hitting you with so much traffic that your legitimate customers and transactions can't get through. Now, we have clients, for instance, who are in the gaming sector, and there's a number of times per year which for them are critical, like the first race of, uh, of the Grand National. It's one race a year where they get almost everybody who has an account with them will bet. For the hour or two before that, they're on high alert for denial of service because of attackers try and shut down their system. They will measure the loss in terms of lost revenue in the tens or hundreds of millions. So let's go back to the ransomware guys. They suddenly find themselves inside the unlocked car in uh, in the side street, for the the want of a better phrase. Uh, And do they know what the company does or are they just looking at kind of a a whole series of code? Do they know what's in the database? Do they know what kind of customers they have? Or is that something that they find out once they're in? Well, there are different levels of sophistication and um, determination from the attackers. Sometimes it's just a random happen chance that somebody's managed to get in and they're not even sure what they're doing. They're in and out very quickly. Other times they're targeting a particular organization and they're much more determined in their planning and their execution. And there's been incidents where they've taken months, once they've got an initial foothold into an organization, to then try and escalate their privileges so that they can access more systems, to map out the lie of the land, to figure out where the most valuable data is, to figure out how they can do the most damage or make the most money from the interaction they're going to then have with the company. And sometimes it can take many months before they actually reveal themselves because they make sure they're good and ready to have their shock and awe moment where they suddenly unleash havoc on the network. Uh, And what about when someone stupidly clicks a link uh, and lets these hackers get in? Is that a, a separate name for that? Yeah, I think P45 is the name you give to that. No, <laughs> That's no. a technical term. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, joking aside. Should they be fired yeah. for, uh, for no, being negligent? With, with Well, no. I mean, organizations, unless somebody has been absolutely malicious in their activities, mm. um, that doesn't happen. And I can give examples of that. In fact, if I, if I reference Tesla had an example in the, U- the US uh, a few years ago where some hackers from overseas really wanted to hack into Tesla's computer systems, found that the security was just way too good. But just as you've mentioned, the internal users have access to those systems. Mm. And they literally had a guy hanging around in bars near a Tesla plant and offering people cash money if they would just take a USB key that he had in his possession, bring it into work, plug it into a computer. That's all they had to do. Did they get in? Uh, Thankfully, the individual they approached with a serious amount of money, like we're talking a six-figure cash sum, no questions asked. Thankfully, they picked an honest guy and he actually reported it to Tesla security. They brought in the FBI. They did an undercover sweep and they arrested this guy who's, I think he was a Russian um, national who was on a tourist visa. But they reckon that it was absolutely, in that case, a corporate espionage or possibly early stage ransomware attack. Users internally will always need to have access because at the end of the day, a system needs to be provided for the users. And in security, we go back to three letters when we look at the the big picture of security, which we refer to CIA. And it's not guys in dark glasses and dark suits, but and it's trench coats. It's you said that the scary guys. No. The idea is you assess your systems from the perspective of confidentiality which means are there only the correct people having access to it? Integrity, which means can you be certain nobody's making unauthorized changes to it? Because we'd all like to hack in and change our bank balance or mm-hmm. change our, our speeding fee. fines or salaries. <laughs> exactly. So integrity is just as important because one little change can make a massive difference. And then A is availability. Is the system available when it needs to be for the people it's supposed to be available for? And if you look at all the different types of fi- cyber attack, they will be compromising one or more of those. So for instance, denial of service attack, is affecting the availability. 
they're not deleting your data, they're not changing your data, they're not stealing your data, but they're preventing the people who legitimately need access to it. And that's a business cost. And that's something which therefore they try to monetize. You're talking about hacking and that's very much a digital type thing. Um, what about the physical infrastructure, i.e. the cables coming into a company? Is that something that can also be hacked? Well, absolutely. In the totality of somebody's cybersecurity or digital security exposure, you need to look at every element. You need to look at where your data is stored, where your data is processed, how your data is transferred, who has access to it, what physical access they have. You need to look at the identity security. How are you validating that people are who they say they are? How do you validate that the devices connecting are devices which are supposed to connect? In a fully formed cybersecurity posture for an organization, all of these things and more get taken into account because otherwise you're only as as strong as your weakest link. And if you watch a a movie about an an airline crash, they always seem to finish by saying 23 different things had to go wrong in a particular sequence and it was a billion to one chance. And just because of those 23 things going wrong, the plane fell out of the sky. In cybersecurity, it's the opposite. If one mistake gets made, you might have compromised everything. And there's been some really crazy examples. There was a picture published of Prince William in the UK a few years ago on one of these royal family happy um, photographs showing the working royal in the Air Force base where he was flying search and rescue helicopters. And there over his left shoulder was a photograph, was a, was a, was a very large piece of paper with his username and password for logging into the computer <laughs> system. And it got published in national newspapers Royal the next one, day. two, three? It was, I can't remember. It was... Uh, <laughs> So we've established that there are vulnerabilities, physical as well as virtual and digital. What's your hit list for what companies need to do to prevent this stuff happening, to prevent malware, ransomware, whatever sort of where? Yeah, if there's somebody listening to this podcast who's having this light bulb moment where they're saying, wow, I've really meant to get around to our security and I really think I should do it now. Where do I start? One of the Put first down things, Facebook and Instagram is a good start. Well, you, you need to know who's on your network and why, but the, the planning stage, and there's a number of methodologies or processes that people apply to just help people get a handle on this because it can seem daunting at first, but it's been done before. It'll be done again. And if you follow the, the steps that people lay out, you can go an awful lot of, a lot of the way towards getting yourself more secure And the very first step, obvious as it might sound, is to take inventory, to understand what data are you storing? How are you you ingesting it? How are you transmitting it? Who has access to it? What are your crown jewels? What would affect your business the most were it to no longer be available or was it to be interfered with? And then you prioritize a plan. And there's three words we then apply in in Threatscape and a lot of other people would have similar methodologies. What you must do is protect, detect, and respond. So the protect part means once you've understood where your risks are, you come up with a plan for how you eliminate as far as possible any risk that you can anticipate you might be exposed to. Secondly, you have to then have a means of detecting if somebody still gets past your defenses, because there's no point in finding out three weeks later that somebody's been in your system. You need to know immediately And then the third part, respond. And the analogy that we give people in terms of the mindset they need to have is that 10 years ago, perhaps, people thought of IT security as being like dealing with a a vermin problem, like mouse traps, where you see mouse droppings in your office, you put a mouse trap down, and you forget about it because a day or two later, you're going to come back and you have a dead mouse. The problem is solved. You, As they would say, you set and forget. You put in place a defense, and you don't have to think about it anymore. 
in cybersecurity, that's not the case. Mm. For one thing, the attackers are much more d- dedicated and relentless and ingenious than any mouse. And they're not as hungry as mice. And there's a lot more of them. And they'll play a long game. And they're changing their attacks. So we would say that the parallel you need to be thinking about with your cybersecurity, it's not the vermin problem, it's the fire security problem. Because in any office like the one we're sitting in now, the first thing you do is you walk around and you figure out, how do I make sure that this is at low as risk as possible of having a fire. So you get rid of flammable materials. You make sure you have a fire extinguisher handy. You have, And you do all the things possible to make sure that you're not at risk of fire. Then you make sure that if a fire does come, you, can, you know about it. So you put in smoke detectors, you put in an alarm system so that you know if there's ever a fire, even though you've done everything you could have thought of to prevent a fire. And then thirdly, you have a response plan. If the, if the smoke detector detects something, who's going to be notified at four in the morning? How are they going to get there to put the fire out? Who will tell the fire? So you're, you're, you're protecting, detecting, and responding constantly. And you have to think about your cybersecurity in the same mindset, constantly evolving, constantly improving. And then you go back to the start and you assess things again because a month later, you might have a new laptop you'd forgotten to look at. You might have some new software package. You might have some new members of staff who haven't been trained yet in how to affect the security. You constantly evolve this. And in fact, um, Gartner, who people pay a lot of money to get the same advice we've just given your listeners for free, Mm -hmm. they call this adaptive security. And they just show a circle going round and around where basically you're constantly refining and tightening it up, but you're never finished. And that's probably the biggest takeaway. It is a constant process. It's also very expensive. This uh, Any SMEs listening to this and say, this sounds super expensive to me. Well, the good news is that to get from zero to 100% protected, I would say is impossible because even the CIA the and the NSA news. have been hacked. But to get from zero to 95 plus percent doesn't take a lot you can, if you stop doing really silly things, if you configure things more appropriately. But for a small company, is that five grand a month? Is that 10 grand a month? It it can be even less. And if you have a good IT services provider, they should be able to help you a lot of the way on the journey. And companies like Microsoft, for instance, are now including a standard or for very low cost, much more security baked in than they used to If you use their cloud services or whatever it is. Or even if you're just using their operating systems. So mm. if you're using Windows, you can use Windows Defender. And if you're using a, a a network service from some very fine network companies, they can, I'm sure, layer on extra layers of network level security. And yes, at the cloud level, there's additional security available. So one of the great things the cloud has done is to make world-class technology available in very small, affordable, bite-sized chunks to people. So you don't need to have an enormously expensive piece of equipment. You just buy a tiny portion of it in the cloud. Would you recommend that some companies have physical backup, i.e. that some of their data is, instead of backing it up in the cloud, which is mostly the case, that you physically have it owned uh, locally? Personally, I would always like to have something 100% under my own control because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, there was an entire data center in France burnt down last year, which, again, is the sort of unthinkable thing that people thought it would never happen, that an entire data center. But there, was, there were photographs. And is that stuff of, not backed up? Is the cloud not backed up? 
with a lot of cloud providers, the level of redundancy and resilience that they're providing to you is somewhat based on the tier of service that you've chosen to pay for. And it's only when things go wrong, you might find that that tick box that you forgot about that took 10% off your bill meant that they weren't replicating your data. And in some cases, they'll say things like, well, our other data center is in America. And for GDPR reasons, we didn't think we could back you up there. The good cloud providers will offer people a lot of data backup. But I always feel that from a business continuity perspective, 100% trusting external parties with your most sensitive data, it doesn't cost much to have an on-site backup. So again, it goes back to, to the cost. Um, uh, and a lot of companies will worry about this thing, but you're saying it is affordable. It is, of course, tax, tax deductible. Um, has GDPR made things worse for companies because they have a far bigger legal onus of responsibility when it comes to managing personal data? So if you had 10 years ago hacked into a company and they just got a load of databases, you know, the company said, well, it's out there somewhere, but so what? Well, there are in a way two different concepts, which on on the one hand are different, but on the other hand intersect enormously. We've been talking so far mostly about security, but in parallel to that, you have privacy. And the privacy element only really applies once you're dealing with personal data. And certain types of personal data is very strongly protected under GDPR, Mm. whether it's people's religious views or their medical records, et cetera. And companies who are dealing with that type of data have a very strong obligation on them to make sure the data is being handled in an appropriate manner and that it's only been accessed by the people who should and it's not at any risk. What can happen for organizations when they are subject to a security breach, which impacts the privacy of the data of individuals, is not only do they end up having to pay the cost of cleaning up afterwards, they then get a knock on the door from the relevant regulator, depending on the country they're in, Mm. and they may get fined. And in some cases, they may get fined a lot of money. And the regulator in this country is the most important in Europe. They have now. That means that, of course, they have to deal with the Facebooks and Googles of the world. So Mm. whether they're going to be after your SME listeners they're probably a little bit down the pecking order. But no, from a legal perspective, the obligation is still the same to protect that data and to make sure that you know why you're storing data, that you're doing it in a manner which is compliant with GDPR, that you're not processing it in a way which breaches GDPR, that you're not transferring it or sharing it in a way that breaches. There's quite a lot that people need to be aware of just to ensure their mindset is aligned with with their obligations under GDPR. Is there a fatigue risk that companies just simply get tired of the constant audit constant testing, constant monitoring? I think it needs a mindset from the people responsible for the security that they understand from the get-go that this is a battle that they will be fighting for their entire career if they're in IT security. We will never down tools in cybersecurity and say, well, that's it. We finally won. We're over. We're going to the beach. There will (laughs) always be something we're dealing with. The what makes it interesting and what makes it a little bit easier to deal with and avoid the fatigue is A, the the, the feeling of success we get when we see a job well done, and, and B, the fact that it does constantly evolve as technology evolves. And as the attackers evolve, we have to keep our skills and our defenses um, up to speed with what they're doing. Do you think AI can play a role in security? AI is an enabler we would view in Fetscape for both sides, the dark side and the good side. And I'll, I'll I give presume you, you're Obi-Wan uh, Kenobi. Well, no, but I have guys working for me who are. Okay. <laughs> the, the reality is that um, if I give you an example of how it's being used for bad, first of all, um, that if we went back a few years to people who were doing email scams where they're trying to do a, an ongoing interaction with you by email, trying to build up a trust and relationship and do what we would refer to as pig butchering, where <laughs> after three or six months they had 
they had built up a trust with you, whether it's a romance scam or an investment scam, that they then felt they could try and get money out of you. It was labor intensive because one one attacker sitting in a you know in a dark room in Nigeria or somewhere doing these has scams, to build up that relationship. It takes time. They have to keep track. They have a hundred different people on the go, and they have to remember. This is the prince in Nigeria. Exactly. Yeah. You know him as well. He's yeah, very generous. <laughs> yeah. Well. In the, they could probably keep track of 50 or 100 of these ongoing relationships at a time because it's very time-consuming. But now you introduce AI, and the AI is basically following some scripts that they've defined, and it's automatically adapting its replies. They can deal with thousands of people. Simultaneously. And, and simultaneously. And they just then wait for the AI to trigger and say, you know what, this guy looks like he's hot to trot. I think it's time to go in for the kill. Mm. So rather, so you're multiplying their effectiveness as bad guys in terms of the effort they're putting in per individual that they might attack. That is a concern. And we're seeing that already. We do a lot of work with large organizations on their email security. And the ability of attackers to create very carefully crafted, targeted emails where they're referencing the right people, the right colleagues, the right... You're looking at this and saying, wow, somebody really did their research before sending this fake email. But actually, with the AI tools that they're starting to develop and deploy, it's becoming much easier because they can pull in open source information and they can find out from news clippings or LinkedIn profiles or social media, tidbits of information which then get woven into the narrative that they're trying to sell the fake email. All of that is just making the job of the attackers easier, at least in terms of the volume of attacks they're able to attempt simultaneously, because it's a numbers game. Maybe one in a hundred people will fall for it. Maybe one in a thousand people will fall for it. But if they can target more hundreds or more thousands, they're getting closer to their goal. Now, that's, that's, that's the Darth Maul that's, or that's the you know Count Dooku side of things. But yes. there's also the Obi-Wan Kenobi or, or uh, Absolutely. good side of things. And that's where, thankfully... Everything is also a force for good. So, just as Darth Vader and and you know, I don't want to spoil the ending of Star Wars for those who haven't seen it, but yeah. but there is also the, the the good side of things. And absolutely, there are some very innovative uses being made of AI because at the end of the day, separating signal from noise, understanding what's going on in somebody's network, figuring out what isn't normal, figuring out what needs investigation, and distilling it down further and further so that you're not giving the users what we would call alert fatigue. If we're telling one of our customers 300 times a month that there's something that might be a problem on their network, mm. they can't keep up. And it's it's like a smoke alarm you just take a battery out of. You say, oh God, not it's again. It's too annoying. Exactly. But if we use the right AI tools combined with the user expertise that we have in our facilities, then we're only ringing you once, twice, maybe never and when, we, when you do hear from us, you want to hear from us because we have used all the technology to really validate and correlate the information that we do think, you know what, you really need to know about this. What about the rogue ex-employee who's left disgruntled, has a lot of the protocols, super clever person? Uh, is it difficult to prevent them from being a bad actor? You, going back to what I said earlier about needing to have your cybersecurity posture across all elements from physical to, to digital, et cetera, the levers and joiners process is something organizations have to take into account, which means that you need to make sure that as soon as somebody has left, they no longer have access to privileged systems and that you take a view as to whether they have any sensitive information about processes, procedures, techniques that you're deploying mm. that may have stayed the same. Most mature organizations which have really strong cybersecurity will also use multi-factor authentication to validate the user so they actually know more certainly who you are and it makes it easier for them to turn off your access across all systems that you're 
previously entitled to access so that therefore they don't have to worry about this. It's only when people have slightly more lax procedures where days or weeks later, and we've, we, we had a case with a FTSE 250 client in the UK where we were called in to do an audit and we discovered a former senior executive was still accessing documents related to a multi-billion dollar uh, tender project, which he should absolutely no longer have been accessing, especially because he had joined a, comp- a competitor. And it's, mm. it, I mean, their jaws hit the floor when we presented the, the That's a bit schoolboy, isn't it? It, the, in his case, the attack or the, the access wasn't um, super sophisticated. Mm-hmm. He was just using his old password and found it still worked and said, I'll have a little look in there. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so it happens. Yeah. Talk to me about a zero trust model. Zero trust is a an evolution of concepts that have been around for about 30 years in IT and in IT security. But they have become much more relevant and useful in the modern age where the the old days of computer systems 25 years ago, a company's network was what was on their premises. There was a nice, clearly defined perimeter. If you weren't in their office, you weren't on their network. But now, especially after COVID and the explosion of remote working, users can be anywhere, devices can be anywhere, data might be in the cloud. It's very hard to draw a circle around your network and say everything inside is ours and everything outside isn't. And there is a phrase that the Americans use, which they call M&M security, or some of the folks in Europe Very call good it Cad- Cadbury's cream egg security. And what, what it means is that you have something which has a hard exterior, but once you get inside the hard exterior, once you get past that defense, everything inside is soft and gooey. Mm. And traditionally, a lot of computer systems on, or networks were designed that way, that they had this incredible security to stop you getting in. But if you got past that, then you had free reign to rummage around and do anything you wanted. So zero trust takes the approach of saying, you know what, we're not going to have this one and done perimeter security. We're going to constantly validate the identity of every user. We're going to revalidate them when they try to do anything privileged. We're going to identify the device that they're using and make sure the device is authorized. We're going to validate the security state of the device and make sure that it's actually secure and a number of other steps. So even if two computers inside the network try and communicate in a zero trust architecture, you're actually validating that they really are the devices they say they are being used by the users who say they're using them before you allow that communication. It may sound obvious, but it's actually changing a lot of the traditional M&M type security. And in the digitally connected cloud era, it has a lot of advantages for people in terms of the ability to detect and block unauthorized access. What about regulation and government action or legislation to protect companies and really try to combat uh, you know, all these cyber attacks? Well, sadly, the attackers in many, many cases are operating in jurisdictions where there's very limited enforcement. They're operating using tools, which makes it very difficult to identify them because they're using the dark web and VPNs, et cetera. Mm. And they're demanding payment if they're if they're doing ransomware, et cetera, using cryptocurrencies and other means, which makes it very hard to track them, even if you're sending them money. So... You can't really legislate easily against some of these types of crimes. What the government needs to be doing and what is happening at high level between various countries is putting some pressure on the overseas countries which have been perhaps a little bit slow to enforce, where there's a reputation for... Russia, Iran, China. You forgot North Korea, but otherwise you got three out of four. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But there, And if you look at some of the most infamous attacks which have happened, um, there is a... 
Um, one of the most infamous of all was the attack on the Central Bank of Bangladesh, which is very strongly attributed to North Korean attackers, and an enormous amount of the hard currency being generated to fund the lifestyles of the of the central core party members and even their purchase of equipment for their nuclear ambitions is being generated by digital attacks. They have teams of attackers based sometimes in other countries just to hack for the glorious leader. So in reality, those four countries, they can't be told what to do. They're either on massive sanctions lists or they're simply too big in a nuclear power to bully around. That, unfortunately, is the sad reality. And that's why you cannot legislate away, currently at least, a lot of these threats to do with digital security. So what can governments do? I presume Ireland, being a small country, can only depend on what's agreed at EU level. Yeah, a lot of what governments can do and what you're seeing happening with people like the National Cybersecurity Initiatives in Ireland are to make it easier for organisations to understand what they need to do to provide them with guidance, to provide them with roadmaps, to give them some trusted point of, of advice. Because if you're at, if you're totally lost and trying to figure out where do I go, that's not a great situation to be in. So that's certainly the government is doing more of. And you have people like the Department of Communications have a stake in this. You have the Gardaí, you have some of the Defence Forces people doing it on a national level. You have critical national infrastructure, which needs to be protected. And that's super important. You also have some of the critical natural, natural resources which in Ireland, you have things like some of the pharmaceutical plants in Ireland are the only source globally for certain very rare drugs. Mm. That sort of stuff has been protected and the government gets involved at that level because that's seen as being mission critical to the success of the state in its global ambitions and its its global part. It has to pay, pay in um, trading with other entities. So Dermot, can I go back to the advice that you gave to companies that will be listening to this and consumers that will be listening to this and entrepreneurs that will be listening to this? What is the big bit of advice that you would give them to prevent them being the next victim, the next statistic? Well, first of all, identify what you're actually doing with your computer systems, where your data is being stored, how it's been transmitted, how it's been processed and then rank them based on importance and value to your business so that you know where your crown jewels are. And then consider how you can protect them, how you can detect if anybody's trying to interfere with them or attack them, and make sure you have a plan for how you will respond. There's no point at four o'clock in the morning if you get a call saying something's going funny on your computer to think, right, what do we do now? You oh, have to should have I a have plan. done? <laughs> exactly. You want to be, as the military would say, left of bang. You want to be doing all those things to prevent the incident happening in the first place. But you also need to have a plan for just in case because nobody gets it right 100% of the time. You need to detect and respond quickly and have a response plan. And larger organizations will test that response plan. They, you know, Even sometimes it comes down to as simple as if your computer systems have been taken totally offline, do you have a way of getting the phone numbers for the 10 people you need to ring to deal with the problem? And in the case of At Sony, four o'clock in the morning. Sony Pictures in America had to go down to their basement and find a box of old Black, um, Blackberry phones because the hackers had shut down their entire network, including their, their ability to make phone calls to each other. And they realized they had to go back to old school to get people's phone numbers out of the old Blackberries they were about to junk. Protect, detect, respond. That's PDR. 24-7. It's been incredibly informative, Dermot. I really appreciate your time. Um, I've learned so much and I hope our, our listeners have learned a lot. That's Dermot Williams, Managing Director of Threatscape UK and Ireland. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. 
That wraps up another episode of the LEO podcast. We hope you found our discussion as captivating as we did. Remember, our journey through the realms of connectivity, technology and business continues. LEO Networks, with 25 years of serving Irish businesses, offers a unique next-day installation and connectivity service. So stay tuned for more thought-provoking episodes that promise to empower you with the knowledge and inspiration you need. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts.